0: The National Archives podcast series, Tracing Huguenot Ancestors. Presented by Dr. Kathleen Chater. I suppose what we really need to do is start off by defining um, what is a Huguenot. Now, strictly speaking, Huguenots were French Protestant refugees who left France under the Louis XIV. This was mainly after about 1680. however they left for reasons of religious persecution we don't include among the huguenots people who left france um, because of the french revolution they were political refugees so it's quite a narrow um, description definition however when the huguenot society was formed um, in the 19th century they decided to include in their remit to do research as well on previous um, religious emigrants who were driven out of their countries because of their Protestantism. And this included the Walloons um, from French-speaking Flanders, um, the Dutch from the Netherlands in the 16th century, and also earlier waves of Huguenots, of French uh, people fleeing from France Um, especially the Massacre of St. Bartholomew in 1572. But there were, you know, uh, people coming at other times and from other places. So we could start by having a look at Protestantism, the reason for all this. And the two main players, if you like, especially in terms of Huguenots, were um, Martin Luther, who kicked off the whole thing. He was a Roman Catholic monk who in 1517 nailed his 95 theses to reform the Roman Catholic Church onto the church door at Wittenberg, Wittenberg actually. Um, now, he wasn't the only person, if you like. There had been a long, long period of people being unhappy about the way the Roman Catholic Church was being run, about the corruption that had kept into it. And also, because there was a fair element of political protest in this, the way that the rulers of various countries used religion in order to um, sort of shore up their, their position and, and, and the abuses that they were committing politically. Um, for us, looking at the Huguenots, the French Huguenots, Jean Calvin is the other um, major player. He was a French theologian and he advocated a much more extreme, radical form of Protestantism than Martin Luther. Martin Luther kept um, sort of the bishops, the archbishops, the hierarchy of the church. Calvin and his various sort of associates and followers had a much more, what we would call fundamentalist approach. They um, said that churches should be run only by an elected body. Um, Each church should have its own sort of elected body, the elders. So they didn't have bishops, they didn't have a hierarchy. Um, as I say he's particularly important but there were all sorts of other um, theologians in Protestantism all over Europe. So um, if we look at Protestantism in England it started in 1534 with Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy where he declared himself um, head of the church in England. He didn't actually um, really necessarily want Protestantism and certainly not the extreme form of it Um, What he wanted to do was marry Anne Boleyn. He wanted to get rid of Catherine of Aragon, who who could have no more children after her daughter, Princess Mary, Um, and and the sort of various other children died. So in many ways, it was declaring himself um, head of the Church of England was um, a political move. However, there were people who genuinely wanted religious reform in England. Um, In 1547, uh, Henry's son, Edward VI, came to the throne. He had been brought up by more extreme Protestants and was very, very keen on the more radical forms. And in 1550, um, because there were already refugees coming in from parts of Europe because England was a Protestant country, and in 1550, Edward VI gave a charter to these various um, French and Dutch communities And he established churches in London, Canterbury, Norwich and Southampton. They were the first ones. In 1553, however, Mary I, his elder sister, came to the throne. She was a very, very strong Catholic and she married Philip II of Spain. So um, they tried to restore Catholicism here. Those of you who have read Fox's Book of Martyrs will know the effects and things like that. And it was only, and so at this point, a lot of people went back to where they'd come from. It might be pretty bad there, but it was, you know, it was bad in England as well. And at least they spoke the language when they went home. So people were going backwards and forwards. And then again, in 1558, Elizabeth I came to the throne and she restored Protestantism. And since then, um, England uh, has been a, a Church of England, an Anglican um, Country, It's the established church, so it is part of the, um, you know, the government. It didn't look like it at the time, of course, but from 1558 onwards, England has been, broadly speaking, um, an Anglican, a Protestant country. So, various people have come here over the years. Um, the first immigrants, though, as I say, the first wave of um, religious uh, asylum seekers Uh, came from the Netherlands, the Low Countries, I suppose I should say more precisely, because it's not um, today's sort of uh, Netherlands, it's a different sort of area. They were, literally speaking, the Low Countries, and there were lots and lots of small um, states within there, you know. um, Luxembourg was part of it and things like that. Now, um, the Romans, the, the Netherlands were ruled by the Spanish Habsburgs, who were connected by marriage to the Habsburgs who ran the Holy Roman Empire. They were very, very strong Catholics. Um, And uh, Philip II, Mary I's um, husband, uh, put the Duke of Alva in charge of the Netherlands. And he really, really persecuted the Protestants and he brought in the Inquisition you know the spanish inquisition they're sort of you know torturing people until they converted and then for the sake of their souls usually burning them. Um, and then uh, the netherlands rebelled against this and finally they um established the united provinces effectively today's netherlands the sort of northern part of this and although they were still ruled by the, um, the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire until, um, you know, into the 18th or I think it was the early 19th century, they effectively had won the right to have their own religion, which was Protestantism. So that's the sort of the Netherlands. So the first um, group of, of immigrants, of asylum seekers, came in in the 16th century. And then, by sort of 1606, 1609, when they effectively won their independence, that particular wave ceased. This is the the church that they were, you know, their charter in the city of London. It's called the Dutch Church in Austin Friars. Um, This is a modern building. It was bombed during the Second World War and rebuilt but it is still a Dutch church. They use it for sort of visitors and and things like that, to be Dutch people working in London. They have the service there. And also the Huguenot Society often um, meets there and has conferences there. They've got very, very good facilities. Um, I mentioned the French a bit earlier. In 1535, an edict in France called for the extermination of Protestantism. And so they started to come over in sort of small waves. But it was the massacre of St Bartholomew in 1572 that really kick-started quite a big wave of French um, immigrants. Um, It appears that the massacre itself was just originally, the aim was just to get rid of a few um, prominent and troublesome Protestants like um, Admiral Coligny. However, it got completely out of hand, and over several months, um, something like 10,000 people were killed all over France. And obviously, those who could fled. This was actually in the middle of the the French wars of religion. Um, Protestantism set off wars of religion all over Europe. Not in England, surprisingly. We got away quite lightly one way and another. There were sort of um, people executed and things like that. much more, there was no sort of full-scale war as there was, for example, in France. They started in about 1562, the French Wars of Religion. And um, it wasn't until, so if we look at the clues to Huguenot ancestry, the dates. um, Some early migrants from France, I'm saying 1572, but they did start to drift in a bit earlier than that. 1598 was when the French Wars of Religion ended with the Edict of Nantes. There were sort of outbreaks of of local troubles for for quite some time after. But the Edict of Nantes was introduced by Henry IV of Navarre. He had been a Protestant, um, and when it came up to be his turn to be king of France, they were getting through kings at an amazing rate there, you know. Um, When it came to be his turn, they said, yes, well, you can be king, but you're going to have to convert to uh, Catholicism. Fine, said Henri. Um, Paris is worth a mass. But he was always sympathetic to the Protestants. He protected them. He introduced the Edict of Nantes, which gave them toleration. So you may find, if you're looking at Huguenot ancestry, we always forget the Dutch as well as, as um, you know, religious refugees. But your early migrants, up to about sort of 1600, if somebody just suddenly pops up from there, you know, it's worth considering. The major influx of Huguenots, however, came from the 1680s to 1720. And I'll talk a bit more about why that is later. But effectively, the influx had finished, the emigration had finished, by the middle of the 18th century, by about 1750. There were some little local outbreaks in the uh, 1750s in the south, the Cévennes and the Dauphiné area, which were sort of mountainous areas where the last had sort of um, fighters, had had taken refuge. But effectively, if your ancestor comes from France after 1750, not a Huguenot, not a religious refugee. An economic refugee, perhaps? Or um, you get all these family stories. A friend of mine had this wonderful romantic story about how his ancestors were Huguenots. They had escaped and da 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 Well, anyway, when he actually looked into it, he found that um, his ancestor was a French sailor who had deserted his ship. <laughs> <laughs> so on that, they had built this wonderful romantic but completely untrue story. So as I say, the major influx came from France in the 1680s. And this was because of the Dragon Arts. Um, in six, up to 1681. Louis XIV had been chipping away at the provisions of the Edict of Nantes. He was um, increasingly finding reasons for Huguenots not to be allowed to do this, not to be allowed to do that, they couldn't have meetings, they couldn't, you know. This was just gradually sort of chipped away. But then in 1681, he decided to introduce the Dragonards. Dragoon soldiers, who are armed cavalry soldiers, were billeted on Huguenots who had to support them out of their own sort of resources. Um, they were also encouraged to behave cruelly. There's a story of a pregnant woman held in front of a fire before, until she fainted, you know. And it was actually this that triggered the really major, major um, exodus from France, the Dragonards. Whole villages would convert at the sight of, you know, armed soldiers coming in or at least they would pretend to convert. They lay low, and then in 1685, the Edict of Nantes was um, abolished. So after that, it was only possible to have Catholic services. Lots of of, um, Protestant refugees were waiting to leave. They couldn't get away immediately, and so they pretended to conform. You can find them. I've looked for my own ancestors in the local church records going to uh, catholic churches apparently conforming um, but biding their time until they could escape so that's one of the sort of possibles to huguenot ancestry your ancestor turning up at a very significant time a a date which you know if you you find an ancestor suddenly appearing they're going to come into into london for example or one of these places for all sorts of reasons Um, This is a good thing to think about, the date. When did this happen? The next thing to think about are the names. Now again, Dutch surnames are very, very similar. Dutch and English are similar languages. They come from the same family group. Veld means field. And Crockett is spelt like that by the Dutch. But of course, the English uh, clerk writing it down would write it C-R-O. Uh, C K E double T and that would look perfectly English to anybody you know reading that. Veld again might well be transcribed as field you can imagine your average English clerk bit bored bit fed up a Dutchman turns up and says my name is Veld and the chap thinks he's got a cold and writes it down as field. French surnames now, obviously, those are much more in- easy to, under- to, to recognize. I've got ancestors called Deschamps, Montaillet, Renier. All those are obviously French. However, they could be corrupted. Um, Duque- Duquesne is written like that, but it's actually said Duquesne. So it becomes Duquesne or Cain. And so, you know, the du or the le or something is quite often dropped. And Bruno, for example, became brown. I personally think the family just got fed up with correcting people. No, it's not brown, it's Bruno. (laughs) And they just gave in. And sometimes it's a straight translation. I've done some work on a family called Dubois. At the beginning of the 19th century, well, the French were, the French have mainly been at war with the English for, like, centuries. But um, from the 1790s onwards, uh, from the Revolutionary Wars and then the Napoleonic Wars, England was at war with France. The English were very um, suspicious of the French. They didn't like them. They attacked them in the street and they thought they might be spies. And at this point, a fair number of Huguenots changed their name to something that sounded English. Some of them are straight translations, like this family I was looking at, who were called Dubois. They just translated it as wood. So you may find the same people with the same sort of information. In some records, they're Dubois. In some records, they're Wood. And that is a really, really significant clue. The third clue, of course, is where your ancestor pops up. London did have the biggest um, congregation, of course, the biggest sort of um, population, simply because most people do turn up in the capital city. The East Spitalfields was the big area there, and it's the one that everybody thinks of, but there there was a fair-sized community in the West, in Soho. They were very much in this area, they were artisans, they were craftsmen. Um, You know, silversmiths, uh, Paul de Delamory, people like that. Um, There were um, wig makers. All the people, um, you know, dealing with the court at St. James. In the city, again, another substantial um, community. These were merchants. And it astonishes me how many um, Huguenots got out with serious amounts of money. I mean, the Bank of England, um, many of the people who started that, contributed money to start it, a really significant proportion were Huguenots. And they stayed in touch. They stayed dealing with France as well, um, because let's not let war and religious things get in the way of making serious money. Um, There were other uh, communities, one at Greenwich. Luckily, the ones at Greenwich, although the records haven't survived, um, they did have pretty well all their services repeated in the Anglican parish church because that was therefore a legal record. You knew that um, they were, uh, Anglican registers, because it was an established church, were accepted in courts of law. So this is actually quite true. A lot of the Huguenots, the Greenwich uh, community, seem to have been quite prosperous. So therefore, they wanted to ensure that there could be no problems. So they got all their um, you know, ceremonies, pretty well all their ceremonies, repeated in the local parish church. Not sure what happened about Chelsea. There were two um, congregations in Chelsea. We only know that, I think, from maps and and a couple of casual mentions. The records of the Chelsea communities haven't survived. But again, we hope that that some of them, we know, use the local parish church. So places are a definite um, thing. This is um, the French church. It's the last um, surviving uh, Protestant, French Protestant church in London. It's in Soho Square. Um, this is the old Fred Needle Street Church, which was the big church. It was the mother church. And although it was a non-conformist church, um, they didn't conform to the Church of England. They didn't have bishops. They had the fundamentalist non-conformist beliefs. Um, this uh, church kind of um, was the mother church of all the the british churches it was the one that everybody turned to for authority Um, it was actually it was one of the first ones that was established it was one of those established under henry vi um, in 1550. they still have uh, services there it's still a big thing for the uh, french community in london and they've got a copy of edward vi's charter hanging there so you can see it there Um, other churches, church buildings remain. This one is the old Church of the Artillery, which was the big church in Spitalfields. It was called that because it was in. Well, this is the building in Artillery Row. But as you see, it's been converted into offices. So, just round the corner, at the top of Brick Lane, is uh, Legley's Nerve, which has had a really interesting career. It started out as a French Protestant church. A non-conformist one, all the Spitalfields um, churches were non-conformist. It became a synagogue and it's now today a mosque. So it's had a chequered career. Um, The ones in uh, Soho, the the west of London, um, were, uh, some were non-conformist, some conformed to the Church of England. This is the last sort of gasp of the, this is the Leicester Fields Church. It was actually, it's now a congregational chapel. It has been rebuilt and made slightly smaller. The French uh, congregation was larger. And so, in fact, it's, it's slightly uh, smaller when it was rebuilt. Um, if you walk around Spitalfields and look at the houses, you can see the attics. They're a really, really notable feature of the, um, the weavers' houses in there. And they were, they had these big windows in the attics high up so that they could work for longer hours. They would have the last of the light, they could go on weaving there. But as you see, I took this picture because I quite liked it. It became a paper bag uh, manufactory. It's been closed down now. It was empty when I took this photo. I suspect it may be one of those that will be bought up and restored because this is something that quite a lot of people are, are trying to do in the area. To restore the houses to, to how they were. Um, the next uh, area, outside London, there were various settlements in the West Country, quite a few. Bristol, Exeter, Barnstable, Plymouth. Only um, Bristol and the Plymouth records uh, survive. We don't have any, there were a lot of other sort of smaller um, ones in, that, in Devon as well. Again, we don't have their records. We don't know what happened to the uh, congregations there. Um, Essex and East Anglia, Canvey Island, no um, records of that at all. Norwich, Ipswich, Colchester, Thorpe Les Thorny. Thorney. Now, Thorney, we know, was um, set up by uh, a Dutch chap who was draining the fens up there. Now, this, again, is the sort of the Dutch uh, link. I suspect that the ones on Canvey Island were doing that as well. We don't know exactly. That's just my um, supposition. But strictly speaking, those are economic migrants. They came here to work. They were recruited for a specific purpose because it was something that they had done in the Low Countries. Um, technically, they aren't Huguenots, but we kind of we've welcomed them in into the Huguenot society. We've got their registers, and they were, you know, they did conform to. They were nonconformists. They were Protestants. Um, in Kent, Canterbury was one of the very early um, churches. Dover, Maidstone, Rye, Sandwich, and the one in sou- the south, Southampton that was one of the original ones set up under the Henry VI by Charter um, it later I mean that congregation almost disappeared and the church was only kept going till the second wave of migrants um, by uh, sailors coming in from the Channel Islands now the Channel Islands there was a fair um, sized number of Huguenots who went there but of course the Channel Islands already spoke French and we were fairly um, sympathetic to non-conformity. So we don't have separate churches for the Huguenots in the Channel Islands. They just disappear. They merge into the local population, who, as I say, were, by and large, all French-speaking anyway. Um, this is the crypt in Canterbury Cathedral, which was where the Huguenot congregation met. They still have a service there in French. I think it's weekly. I don't know if they've changed it to monthly, but I'm pretty certain it's weekly. They still have a service there. And it was in the crypt. And I've chosen this particular engraving of it because it was done by a chap called John Le who was the descendant of um, one of the very early families that settled there. They were weavers originally. They wove wool when they started out, because, of course, Canterbury, Kent, um, all the, you know, the sheep. It was a big wool town. And the weavers who came in there originally wove wool. Peter Le Coeur um, was, uh, I think, John Le father. But anyway, Peter Le Coeur um, moved up to London and became very important in the weavers' company in the city. But his son, as I say, became an engraver. And he's quite collectible now. So if you see these, they're, they're worth snapping up. But it's quite interesting to see how Um, A lot of them remained within the sort of craftsman, artisan thing, doing things with their hands. Um, These are the weavers' houses in Canterbury. Not as high as the um, attic ones in London, of course, because it wasn't so built up, the town. But you can still see these very, very big windows. And they're on the River Stour. You need water to work in textiles and fabrics. But anyway, that's the uh, weavers' houses in Canterbury. Now, um, outside England, there were other communities, Uh, at least one in Scotland. We've got very, very little information about there. Um, There's a place called, there's an area called Picardy Place in uh, Edinburgh, where the the inhabitants, there were supposed to be some weavers' cottages there. The inhabitants came in there they say. Um, And in Ireland, there were four Protestant churches in Dublin. Um, The earliest one there was uh, the, the refugees started to come in there from 1680. There wasn't an earlier sort of wave of migrants into Ireland. And then there was Port Arlington. Now, the British government encouraged Huguenots to go to Ireland from about 1680 onwards. This was partly because they were Protestants, to establish them in a Roman Catholic country in the hope that it would eventually convert them. But also um, because they wanted them to develop the Irish linen industry. There was a small linen industry there already. um, But the Huguenots were very important in developing that. And as we all know, it became very, very successful. Um, The settlement at Port Arlington is quite interesting because it's the only one uh, in the British Isles that was built specifically for Huguenots. It was actually built for them um, in 1692. The majority of the people who went there were veterans from William III's army you know, Dutch William, who came over in 1688 to take the, um, the, the crown with his wife, Mary. And um, he had fought, he fought the Battle of the Boyne. And let me just add as a footnote here, he fought the Battle of the Boyne with the Pope's blessing. <laughs> People don't like this, but it's actually true. Anyway, and he won. And the veterans from his army were rewarded. Many of them were Dutch, many of them were Dutch Protestants. You know, there were also lots of Huguenots as well, who really, really wanted to fight the French as well. But, you know, you don't get the choice in the army, you do what you're told. So, um, and also Port Arlington was um, supplemented by, there's a very, very large number of refugees who had gone to Switzerland But Switzerland was just swamped, couldn't cope, Neustadt, there were, I mean, thousands, literally thousands of people flooding into there and they couldn't cope, so a fair number of them actually came to the British Isles and went to Port Arlington. Um, The registers have been published and also the um, Veterans uh, Pensions book, so that's, you know, another possibility. So here are some of the indications for um, tracing Huguenot ancestry, the date, the name and the place where your ancestor came. There were no communities in Wales and there were no communities in either the Midlands or the North. Any individuals who went there will be in the standard genealogical sources but um, it's very, very unlikely that an individual family would have gone there all by themselves. They would initially have come to the established settlements because they had access to all sorts of help there and money. So they would have come in the first place to them. Later on, yes, a few do go um, to the Midlands. I'm thinking of, of um, a family that went up there to set up a business, you know, but not the first generation. So the place is quite important to think about where your your ancestor suddenly appears. So how do you find out more? The major sources, of course, are the church records. As I've indicated, not all of them have survived, but church registers um, of baptisms and marriages. Most churches did not have burial grounds i think only port arlington and a couple of the um, dublin churches did canterbury noted burials deaths and burials some of them did but they didn't have their own burial grounds most of them are therefore buried in their local parish church and this is where you will find burials of people with very odd names sometimes english clerks had some trouble with them (laughs) Um, the Acts of the Consistory are another great source of information. Those churches, it's, it's the sort of the equivalent of the vestry in the Anglican church. It was the, the, the church authorities gathered um, to make all sorts of decisions about money, about paying you know, relief for their poor. Um, but what they mainly did there was they um, inquired into the morals and the conduct of the church. There's a great one where, The Act of the Consistory, um, they, they were having a discussion about whether doctors should be paid or not, and then suddenly this chap popped up, accused of being getting engaged to two girls at the same time. <laughs> anyway, this went, this tripped on for a few, a few sort of meetings. One of the girls said, well, I don't want to marry him anyway now. And he wound up having to make a public confession of his, um, you know, his transgression of the the rules in front of the whole congregation. So that does give you quite a lot of information, additional information. The surviving registers have been published by the Huguenot Society in the books. This HSQS is Huguenot Society Quarto Series. This is a big series. There's over 50, I think it may be up to 60 books now of various kinds of of things you know connected with the huguenots in britain Um, the registers have been published and and they're all on cd-rom all the registers are on cd-rom you can search them by name you can search them by subject by place it's you know a really good facility however the dutch churches in london and norwich have not yet been transcribed Um, both of them uh, are in london metropolitan archives the Dutch church, Austin Friars, has been filmed and is there. Nora, and there were also, there've been, there were a couple of Victorian publications about it, lists of church members and things like that. However, the Norwich, uh, the Dutch church in, in Norwich, I don't think has ever been transcribed or ever been used, but the original of it is in London Metropolitan Archives. So worth thinking about. Other church records, some have been published, like the acts, some acts of the consistory have been published, like Thread, I think, Fred Needle Street at various periods has been, but not all of them. Um, others are still in the Huguenot Library, uh, which is here temporarily. They, it's, it's part of University College Library's um, special collections, and because they're re. Um, they're moving the the special collection around from its old home. I'm not quite certain where it's going to. Nobody knows yet. But anyway, it's temporarily at the National Archives here. And it's two days a week. So you can access the records two days a week here. Um, The archives of the French church in Soho Square, that still has a fair number of the original um, records, not just from the Fred Needle Street church, but from some of the others as well there's uh, a couple of guides. The Huguenot Society um, has published various sort of um, catalogues of uh, things and where they are. So the church records themselves as I mentioned, the registers, the acts of the consistory and there are also specific things to do with um, Protestantism itself. Témônage, is a witness, a witness statement. It was a sort of certificate that you were supposed to get from your previous congregation when you turned up at a new church, um, testifying that you were a good Protestant and you, know, you were a member of the church. Now, obviously, um, in the circumstances in which many escaped, there was no way you could get your piece of paper you know, and bring it with you, although a surprising number did. Um, So what you then did was you got someone to vouch for you. Either someone who knew you or the authorities would question you to make sure that your beliefs were suitably orthodox. Abjurations, as I mentioned before, people had to conform to Catholicism before they could escape. Many of them took a long time to get out. And so they would um, attend churches or they were services. or they would pretend to be Catholics and they then had to abjure this religion formally in front of the local congregations. So there are records of abjurations. There's a really um, great one, of um, this appears in the Acts of the Consistory. This chap turned up and he had, um, was brought before the authorities because he had um, got a passport stating that he was a good Catholic so that he could go home to France for somebody's funeral. And when he was at the funeral, he had taken part in the service and had taken communion. And the authorities were absolutely appalled by this. They thought it was terrible. Um, But they didn't excommunicate him as they could have done. They just required him to abjure this. You think it must have been someone terribly, terribly important for him to take that kind of risk. Going back to France after 1685 as a Protestant, he could have been put in the galleys, he could have been executed, he could have had all sorts of things done to him. So he must have, you know, that must have been a very important funeral. Um, Reconnaissance, are recognition of fault in attending a Catholic service. And again, these are very, very useful because all these places mention where the ancestors came from. If you bring your témoinage from, from you know, a church in Normandy, then you know that's where your ancestors came from. You can start looking there. Um, if the abjuration shows that you attended a service in a place, very likely that was, a family, that was the family home. And the reconnaissance, the recognition, again, of your fault in attending services. So these are very, very well worth investigating. There are other um, specific sources as well. Charities. The Huguenots set up a huge number of charities. Well, a comparatively large number of charities. About 50,000 um, came to England altogether. But they set up a fair number. And people went on giving them bequests. As I said, there were lots of, of surprisingly rich merchants. The French hospital is the major one. That was set up in the early 18th century. or There were a place was used a bit earlier but it was built in the early 18th century and that was for both the sick and the old who could no longer work it was um, the all the books you know the entries relating to it up to 1957 because it's still going um, are published by the Huguenot Society and they have the original records in the library so you can consult them and they're also on CD-ROM the Coco charity, um, which is published with the um, French hospital records, a woman called Esther Coco set up a, a charity for ten poor women, either unmarried or widows, single women, and it paid out a certain amount of money. When one of them died, someone else took her place. So the records of that are very, very useful as well. There were charities in Norwich, one which still survives and which is administered by the local, I think the local council there. Um, apprenticeships. The Huguenots also um, paid the premiums for poor children of Huguenot descent to be apprenticed. There are a fair number of those. The Mounier um, apprenticeship scheme was set up by a chap called Etienne Mounier. Um, but there were various other ones, um, quite a few of them. Um, and again they still sort of survive you can apply to them Um, they kind of approve of people doing if you like traditional Huguenot skills and they will do things like buy um, tools for example for a goldsmith rather than because you don't pay premiums for apprenticeship any longer Um, last soup lasted for a few years that was in Spitalfields at a particularly bad time for the weaving industry there and it's called Last Soup." It was actually called the Mason of the, the House of Charity, but it's called Last Soup" because they doled out food. They didn't give you money. They gave you soup and bread and meat. And the records of that, again, will indicate where your ancestors were living, and their occupation, the number of children in the family, lots and lots of useful information there. Uh, the Royal Bounty uh, was set up in 1686. It was primarily um, concerned with um, giving money to clergymen, to um, French ministers. However, they did at different times just give money to refugees generally. And it lasted until 1876, when the government said, no, frankly, all these foreigners, they need to go to their local parishes, just like everybody else, you know. So it was wound up in um, 1876. And there were also French schools, and there are grants now for people, educational grants for, for people of Huguenot descent. So it's very, very well worth investigating. <laughs> um, there were two French schools, one in Spitalfields and one in Westminster. And the lists of all the, the pupils have been published in the Huguenot Society's Proceedings, you know, which is the, the magazine, that they, the journal that they bring out. So, um, those are the ways of finding out more about your, your ancestors. Let me just show you. This is the, the French hospital. It was rebuilt. It's, it's in Victoria, it overlooks Victoria Park, you know, by Hackney. And you can see that as a really substantial building. That was built, you know, um, it, in, ironically, and you can't see it on the signboard there, but. Um, It became a Roman Catholic school. (laughs) You know, they just sold it to them. Um, That was it in, um, you know, sort of Victorian times. And here's the sitting room. The men and women had separate sitting rooms. And as you see, um, it was very, very well furnished. A charity commission, a a Victorian charity commission, looking at this sort of, um, you know, how, how the poor were looked after came along and said very sniffily, it's much too good for the poor, you know. (laughs) And this is it today. Um, It's a square in Rochester, in Kent. After the war, the French hospital relocated to Horsham during the war and it stayed there for a bit. And then after the war, they decided, instead of returning to to Hackney, they decided to buy um, property in a square in Rochester, in Kent. And it's called La Providence, the square is called that, because that was what um, the inmates originally called the French hospital. La Providence, meaning God's protective care. And that's what it's called today. And if you can prove your your Huguenot ancestry, you may be able to move into a flat there too. Um, There were other specifically Huguenot things. Friendly societies, for example, there were a number of Huguenot-friendly societies. Most of them were regional. The Society of Linto, which was uh, the Society of High and Low Normandy, the Society of Saint-Ange and Augmois, um, the Parisiennes, the meridignon all sorts of friendly societies. This chap, Vitu, he got the, the, the receipts are in the records of this uh, the Society of Saint-Ange. And he got um, handouts from them for quite a long time, you know, so he must have been ill for a bit. I haven't actually, I really need to um, check whether he, um, he later went into the French hospital. But anyway, as you see, Chauvet's fund, people left money to them for um, per charitable purposes as well. Uh, here's the apprenticeship register. This is apprenticeships under the will of Stephen Mounier. And as you see, the apprentice Clements Griffiths, uh, what's that? Stringer, Hedger. By now, this is the um, you know the 19th century. Those are all English names. The families have integrated, they have intermarried. They have lost, if you like, the sort of Huguenot um, solidarity, but they've kept the memory of it, and they know where to go, if they need um, you know, help because of Huguenot ancestry. There's only, I think there's only a couple there. There's uh, what is there? Uh, Wagen, Debourg and um, Planche are the only ones that appear to have retained, you know, the Huguenot names. So when you're looking, again, at uh, sort of apprenticeships and things like that, occupations, merchants, I mentioned those. They are going to be in the city of London. Um, They were also very heavily involved with luxury goods and services, textiles. They started out as wool weavers and then became especially associated with silk weaving. It doesn't mean that if you have English ancestors that they didn't do weaving as well. The, um, you know, the people assumed, because my ancestor lived in Spitalfields and he was a weaver, he must have been a Huguenot. This isn't true. A lot of people did you know weaving. It was a big, big um, British business. Craftsmen, goldsmiths, silversmiths, furniture makers, architecture, garden design, wig makers, clothing, shoes. And the Huguenots in these areas had an enormous advantage, because French. Was fashionable. French was chic. And so they had an advantage already because they were French and they knew what the sort of, you know, the fashions were. So all those are, uh, um, you know, occupations to have a think about. This is John Dolland, who started out life as a silk weaver in Spitalfields, but he had an interest in lenses and so he um became a spectacle supplier (laughs) as his son did as well to one of the georges can't remember which one and then the firm of dolland and acheson of course where came from that i used to buy my glasses there out of huguenot solidarity (laughs) (laughs) but they've now been taken over by boots and joseph basiljet of course the basiljet family have had some significant um influences on english society this is Joseph Bazalgette's um, memorial on the Embankment because he built the sewage system, the sewer system in London. He built all the, um, you know, the, the, the sewers and things like that. Um, and his—I don't know whether it's his great grandson or great-great grandson—but Peter Bazalgette, um, he worked in television and he brought us Big Brother. Mm. <laughs> so he's had a slightly different influence on English society. Um, here's uh, Francois Rubiliac, uh, a sculptor, and Henley Hablock Brown, uh, Fizz, was uh, Dickens' illustrator of course, and he is from the Brown family that were originally Bruno. So he too came from a Huguenot background. Now a few other sources to have a look at. The Returns of Strangers, they're all in the National Archives here. Um, Published by the uh Huguenot Society, and the lay subsidies as well have been investigated. Those are largely um, Tudor and Stuart. Those are pretty well all Tudor and Stuart returns of strangers uh, made, partly um, because there was the usual thing about we are being swamped by all these foreigners. They are coming here, they eat funny food, they wear funny clothes, and they're after our women, you know. And so the government did these um, to prove that there weren't actually quite so many, but also did them sometimes because they thought that, you know, they were worried about spies in time of warfare. So you can find those. The Huguenot Society has done them, but has transcribed everybody. So if your ancestor appears in there, they may not be Huguenots. They transcribed all of them. At this sort of, uh, in Tudor and Stuart times, of course, Scots were foreigners as well. So they've got the Scottish in there as, you know, foreigners and the returns of strangers. Denizations and naturalizations. Denization is the right to live in a country. Um, Naturalization gives you the full citizens' rights. Those have been published, again, taken from the records here from 1500 to 1800. And the livery companies... um, Some of their records of of the City of London, some of their records are published, some are still with the company and some are in the records um, in the Guildhall Library. The Weavers' Company records have been published by the um, Huguenot Society. And then the other major source of course are wills. Um, The PCC wills here are online. What you do find here, very often as an indication of Huguenot ancestry, is leaving money to a specific minister. Or I've just looked at one where one of the trustees is a Huguenot, a well-known Huguenot. Or they leave a a legacy to one of the Huguenot charities. So that's quite a good thing. Now, um, your ancestors who came to England from France might have stopped off in other places on the way. Um, some would go to the Netherlands because they were nearer. It was easier to escape there. Or to Germany if you were on the border, to Switzerland, even to Denmark, and a few went to Scandinavia, and then came on to England. So this gives you other sources of, of you know, where to look for, for ancestors. This is um, historical episodes of famous towns. This is the Huguenots being welcomed into Berlin. And it's, for some reason, it's used to advertise what was effectively Bovril, the kind of thing. I don't know why they made this connection, but anyway, it was a big thing. And then, of course, they went from Britain to the United States, to Canada, South Africa, Australia, all over the world. So you may have, you know, fairly far-flung Huguenot um, relatives. Finally... The Huguenot cross, um, a highly symbolic thing. You can get one of these if you have Huguenot ancestry. I mean, well, you can buy one anyway, but it's based on the Order of the Holy Spirit, which was set up by Henri, uh, Henry IV of Navarre, the guy who gave the um, toleration and the Edict of Nantes. Um, the Fleur de Lis, of course, symbolizes France. There are 12 points one, two, three, four, 12 points symbolizing the 12 apostles. These are the four gospels, and these um, are the eight beatitudes. There's also quite often a heart in the center because that was the personal um, badge of uh, Calvin. And the the dove symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and it could be replaced in times of trouble and uh, persecution by a pearl for tears. So I hope I've given you an idea of um, you know, some of the possibilities for finding Huguenot ancestry. And I hope I've given you an incentive, enough of an incentive by you know, showing you what charities have survived for you to, to take this seriously when you're investigating your family history. Thank you very much. This podcast was recorded on the 22nd of November 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.